If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We'll be studying verses 1 to 3, though I'll, I'll read the whole of the Beatitudes through verse 10. Let me again say it's great to be back with you. And again, thank you for praying for my family while I was gone. I know that you were in good hands with uh, both Chris Taylor and Dan Schweder preaching the last couple of weeks and Scott and Brian leading the services. Thank you to all you men. And let me again welcome you if you're visiting with us. We hope that you find Redeemer to be a home for you. We at Redeemer believe the Bible is the word of God. This morning we're returning to our study of Matthew after a break for Advent and Christmas. We're in the first main section in Matthew of the teachings by Jesus. They're lumped together in five chunks. This is the first of the five. The first, which is called or the Sermon on the Mount, was first called the Sermon on the Mount by Augustine, actually, because, as we'll read, Jesus went up on the mountain to teach his disciples. Philip Jensen says the problem of preaching the Sermon on the Mount is no matter who you are, you can never do it justice. And I think we'll find that to be case, uh, the case around here at Redeemer in weeks ahead. Uh, notice it begins in verse 3 with what are often called the Beatitudes. Uh, the Beatitudes, that word comes from the Latin word for blessing because Jesus blesses his people. Jesus begins with the blessed person, as we're going to see, because he wants you to be one. Why else would he talk about it unless he cared about you and wanted you to be blessed and to know what true blessing is? And so today we're going to think about that with him. We're going to think about how does uh, how are they blessed? Uh, who are the blessed? What does blessed even mean? This morning we'll begin, as I said, with the first beatitude at verse three, but we'll read the whole to see where Jesus is going with this. Let me give your attention to the word of God from Matthew chapter five, beginning at verse one. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him together in prayer. Father in heaven, help us. Be our teacher. Speak by your word, by your spirit to our hearts. 
Show us the glory of Christ and ourselves in light of you. In his name I pray. Amen. Jesus says in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Disciples of Jesus is who he's talking about. These are the people who belong to the kingdom of God. People whose sins are forgiven. People who are sons and daughters of the God of the universe. This is not a sermon about pie in the sky in heaven when you die. This is not a sermon about an ideal world that is yet future. It's not about there and then. It's about here and now, as one put it. It is about living a Christian life, a kingdom life in a fallen world. Uh, In these Beatitudes, Jesus isn't saying, do these things in order to become a Christian. For instance, you don't become a child of God by being merciful or a peacemaker. But the children of God express both and need to grow in them too. So these are not some kind of new law as if they taught, do this and God will save you. These are part of the gospel. These are part of the effects and the blessings and the attitudes that the children of God have as Jesus has worked for us, died for us, brought us to himself to transform us by his grace. We are blessed and we are changed. It's a double grace. And so we want to think about what it means to be blessed and what the blessed person is like. From this passage, what does Jesus in the first place mean by blessed? What does he mean by blessed? It's the opposite of cursed. The word has been translated as happy by some. It does in places mean happy, but our word happy isn't substantial enough for what Jesus is describing. When we think of happy, we probably are thinking of circumstances that make us feel good, however briefly. If I asked you, when was the last time you were happy? You might say, oh, I had that lingering feeling of joy after I received some unexpected gift, or I had the pleasure of some embrace in a loved one, or um, I had a thrill on a roller coaster. Or I had the quiet satisfaction of a happy conclusion to a tension-filled movie. And at the end, they wanted me to be happy, and I was. Some of you are happy when the sun shines. Some of you are happy when the rain mists. Some of you are happy when the steak is medium rare. And some of you are happy when the steak is medium well. And if you can believe it, some of you aren't happy with steak at all. I don't get it. Some of you are happy when you receive a Christmas bonus or a New Year's raise. Some of you are happy when you get a promotion at work or enjoy the recognition of achieving high academic success in your previous semester or you hope to be happy at the end of this one. Some are happy when their family is gathered and healthy and getting along. And it isn't wrong to be happy about any of those things. They are good gifts from God. 
as all good gifts are. But that's not the blessing Jesus is talking about here. As Leon Morris put it, there is more to blessedness than happiness. All those other things may make us happy until they fade. And we start looking for more of them or something new to turn us on. Jesus isn't talking about that kind of happiness. He's not talking about how you feel based on your circumstances. What is he talking about? He's talking about being God-blessed. He's talking about what God says of you and what you therefore are. God-favored, God-graced, receiving the spiritual gifts of God because you've received the grace of God so that you know God. Enjoy God and are in a restored relationship with God. That's true blessedness. That's what Jesus wants you to enjoy. That's what he's talking about. Now, how are they blessed? Well, Jesus tells you the blessings in their particulars are tagged at the end of each beatitude. He spells them out. He begins with the poor in spirit to whom the kingdom of heaven belongs. That's the blessing. How are they blessed? Of them is the kingdom of heaven. It includes them. And he ends in verse 10 with the persecuted. Persecuted for righteousness. Persecuted for Jesus. And what? Once again, the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. In between all these other blessings are various descriptions of the benefits of belonging to the kingdom of heaven. For instance, you are comforted by God. You inherit the earth. You're satisfied by God. You receive God's mercy. You see God. You are called the children of God. These are the blessings. You get them all together as well. As you think through these eight Beatitudes, it would be absurd to say one gets this and another gets that. As the one got comfort by God and another got mercy by God, but somebody else gets to actually see God. No, no, no. All Christians have all the blessings, as Paul put it in Ephesians 1, who've tried to hammer home here at Redeemer from day one. Praise be, he says, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You don't always feel that way. You haven't enjoyed them in the consummation of them, but you have a foretaste of them, and they are yours, all of them. So likewise here. And these blessings, notice, they are a gift. They're not worked for. You don't merit them or earn them. I mean, after all, those who mourn don't comfort themselves, but are comforted by God. The meek don't take hold of the earth. But they receive it as an inheritance from God. So likewise, the poor in spirit, they don't merit the kingdom by being poor in spirit. They're given it by God as a gift. I know a man who is wealthy and he has worked hard and saved a lot. He didn't come by it by inheritance. He doesn't want financial help. He does like to give it. And that's a good thing. It's the biblical ethic to work hard, supply your own needs so that you can have something to share with those who are needy. That's Paul in Ephesians. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him work. Be industrious that you might be charitable. 
That's a positive thing. In matters of money, it's no virtue to be poor and not necessarily a vice to be rich. The Christian rich, the Apostle Paul says, should not put their hope in riches, but in God. But it's not inherently wrong to be rich. Well, this rich man I was telling you about enjoys having resources to give. But he doesn't really like being in need of receiving help. But as I always tell Melina, you can't be a Christian if you can't receive. You must know you are spiritually poor and needy for what only God can graciously give you. Now, happily, that man I spoke of knows God's blessings are a free gift and he's needy for them. Do you know that? Or are you trying to make yourself worthy of the blessing of God? And if you are, then you must know that there is no end of that rat race. You're just a gerbil on a treadmill, always chasing worthiness, but never measuring up. God's blessings are his free gift found in Christ. Just rest in Christ and they're yours. And so there are these blessings, including belonging to the kingdom of heaven. Who are the blessed? Notice what Jesus says. Blessed, he says, are the who? The poor in spirit. Now what's that? It's an attitude about yourself you see yourself as poor he's not talking about having money or possessions though some have taught and many commentators do uh, as as if jesus is baptizing poor people with kingdom blessings as if it was a virtue to be poor or as if being financially poor opened the door to god's favor and being financially rich somehow close that door but you can be rich and have a humble needy trust in the lord just as you can be poor and defiantly curse your maker jesus isn't speaking in financial or material or physical categories here he says poor in spirit he's speaking in spiritual categories it's the opposite of being rich in spirit Thinking you have it all together. Being self-confident and self-assured and self-sufficient with all the resources you need in yourself. Basically, Jesus is doing the opposite of everything this world tells you to do and be. He turns everything upside down. The world says, be confident. Be self-assured. Conquer the world. Have at it. You can do it. And Jesus is the blessed person who knows none of that's true about themselves. The word he uses here actually speaks of crouching or cowering like a beggar. There are two words he could have used to speak of the poor. There's two Greek words for the poor. There's the poor who are of lower income, barely scraping by, by the sweat of their brow, eating by their labor day by day, in the lower financial class of society, with the prospect through hard work, possibly, of rising out of that poverty. 
That isn't the word Jesus uses here. Jesus uses the word for the person who is utterly destitute and completely dependent on the goodwill of others. They can't meet their own needs by their own hands. To be poor in spirit is to see yourself like you are in reality before God. Weak, helpless, and needy. Spiritually bankrupt. Aware of the debt of your sins which you cannot repay. You're a spiritual beggar. Blessed is the spiritual beggar. So that you know that all that you have is is a cry for mercy. That's all you got. Have mercy on me, O Lord. This, Jesus says, describes the disciples of Jesus. Now some people object to Christianity portrayed this way because they say, well, that's just a crutch then. Jesus is just a crutch for people who can't make it on their own. Our response is, yep, that's true. That's me. Says John Piper, Piper, why why is the thought that Christianity is a crutch considered a valid criticism of Christianity? People don't usually look at a crutch and say, that's bad. (laughs) It's just a crutch, right? People don't in general think that crutches are bad things. Why does a crutch become a bad thing when it's Christianity? I think the answer is most critics that most critics would give is this. He says, if Christianity is a crutch, then it's only good for cripples. But we don't like to see ourselves as cripples, so it's offensive to our self-sufficiency. But Jesus, I'll remind you, said it is not the well who need a physician, but those who are sick. He didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. The only people who will ever come get what Jesus is offering are people who are and know themselves to be spiritually and morally crippled. That's how Jesus diagnosed the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3. The last letter he wrote to the seven churches. They were lukewarm. This is that group. He says, I want to spit you out of my mouth. I wish you were hot or cold, but you're lukewarm towards me. Why were they lukewarm towards Jesus? Because they said, he says, they said, we are rich. We need nothing. And Jesus corrected them saying, You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I see you as you really are spiritually. Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You need me to clothe you. You need me to heal you. You need me to make you rich. Don't you see that? Do you see that? There's some great illustrations of this in the Bible. Do you remember in Isaiah 6 when Isaiah went into the temple? He says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings and with two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet and with two he flew and they cried out to one another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, what was Isaiah's response to the majesty of this king of kings in all his holiness? He said, woe is me, for I am lost. 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He said, woe is me. I'm I'm grieved, he said, because I'm evil, I'm unclean. I deserve to be cursed. But then it is that God had mercy on him. God atoned for his sins. God forgave him, and then God sent him out to be his ambassador. But he wasn't ready to preach salvation in his day until he knew he didn't deserve salvation. There's another illustration of this. It was the instinctive response of Peter when he was out in a boat with Jesus and Peter, the commercial fisherman, fishing all night, and he caught nothing. And Jesus says, put your nets down over there. And then they caught so many fish, the nets were breaking. And what did Peter do? He fell at Jesus' knees, it says, and said, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. What's he doing? He's saying, I I know who you are. I've seen your power and your knowledge on display just now. And I know who you are, the Holy One of Israel. What are you doing in a boat with me? I have no right to be in a boat with you. Get away from me, Lord. I'm a wicked man. Is that your instinctive response to Jesus in all his majestic holiness? Listen, you can be impressed with Jesus or you can be impressed with yourself, but you cannot be impressed with both. And if you're not impressed with Jesus, you must think pretty highly of yourself. And if so, Jesus told you this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a tax collector and the other a Pharisee. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give it tithes of all I get. See how full of himself he is? He isn't like those other people. By contrast, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. See how poor in spirit he is? What did Jesus say? I tell you, Jesus said, this man, this God be merciful to me, a sinner man, went down to his house justified rather than the other. When he knew that he had nothing to offer God but his sin, then it is that God had everything in store for him. How do you get this kind of poverty of spirit? You can't get it by squeezing your eyes shut, grimacing and conjuring it up. But you get it by a sight of God in all his majesty and holiness. And by the knowledge of yourself in all your sinful self-righteousness. She who is always trying to humble herself. Is trying to make herself what she is not. Yet she expects God to treat her the way she thinks she deserves. With justice. And she will regret that. 
But she who admits she's arrogant and she can't change herself is admitting she needs what she can't provide. And so she asks God to treat her with what she doesn't deserve. Mercy. And she receives it. The humble person admits they are proud. The proud person is always trying to posture themselves as humbler than they are. And they're proud of the progress they've made. Or thought they have. Listen, just own the fact that you are spiritually proud, self-righteous, self-confident, self-dependent. Just own it. To know the disease is one step towards the cure, as one put it. But it is pride that will keep you from getting help. The story is told of an English lady, a, a, a true lady, Lady Huntington, who loved to hear George Whitfield preach the gospel. She had a lot of joy in being a Christian. She wanted to share that joy with others she cared about in her own rank, in her own class, in her day. So she invited her friends to hear Whitfield, friends who didn't want to come. Her friend, the Duchess of Buckingham, got invited and wrote Lady Huntington what is now a very famous letter, declining the invitation, writing, quote, It is monstrous. To be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl the earth. And this is highly offensive and insulting. And I cannot but wonder that your own ladyship should relish any sentiment so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. (laughs) What arrogance, right? Yet how... If we said out loud what was in our heart, how much like us. Listen, don't let your pride keep you from belonging to the kingdom of heaven. Don't deny you're proud or even seek to work on being humble. Just own the fact that you are proud and tell Jesus you need to save him. You need him to save you from yourself. That would, in fact, be... The poverty of spirit. Jesus is describing. C.S. Lewis in letters to an American lady offered this counsel. May God's grace give you the necessary humility. Try not to think, much less speak, of their sins. One's own are a much more profitable theme. And if on consideration... One can find no faults on one's own side. Then cry for mercy. For this must be a most dangerous delusion. Hell, friends, is full of people who think they deserve heaven. Heaven is full of people who know they deserve hell. You have nothing to offer God but your sin. If you will acknowledge that, he has everything to offer you. The moment you say, Lord Jesus, I have no claim on your kingdom, he says the kingdom is yours. When you admit you have no right to the blessings of God, he says the abundant blessings of God are yours by mercy. Those who are not poor in spirit are not in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. Everybody who is poor in spirit is in the kingdom of heaven. 
Nobody is in the kingdom of heaven who is not poor in spirit. And irony of irony, those who are poor in spirit and are in the kingdom of heaven are in this life lamenting that they are still far too proud and too self-reliant. And so they are what? They're actually growing more and more in poverty of spirit. And blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, let me ask you one last question and suggest some answers to it. How does it show? What might it look like to be poor in spirit and belong to the kingdom of heaven as you live in this fallen world? As your pastor, I offer you these for your consideration. First, you are impressed with Jesus and not yourself. You have despaired of yourself. You know that you are the chief of sinners. You don't excuse your sin or ignore your sin. And though you grieve your sin, you're comfortable with a language that calls yourself a spiritual traitor to King Jesus and a moral terrorist to people you offend and neglect. You claim the fault of your own evil as your own fault. And you credit Jesus for the good that you do. Because it's his grace at work in you. You're impressed with him and not you. Second, you're grateful. You are amazed that God has been so good to you that Jesus would love you and give himself for you. Proud people aren't grateful people. They think God owes them. Third, you're a praying person. Because you know that you are poor and needy. Proud people don't pray. They've got all that they need. The poor in spirit pray and their prayers include sincere, though imperfect, cries for mercy. You aren't bargaining with God in your prayer based on your worthiness. Give me what I want, Lord, because I've shaped up. No, you're relying on being heard because of the righteousness of another. You come to God In Jesus' name and not in your own name. Based on the righteousness of Jesus, not on your own righteousness. Fourth, the poor in spirit teach others with humility. You know that your knowledge and understanding is not due to your superior wisdom, but to God's gracious illumination of his truth and your heart by the work of his spirit. All credit to him. You know you were lost and he found you. You were blind and he made you see. So when you talk to others, even teach others, you do it with humility. You're patient with fellow Christians when they don't understand or believe what you do. You know that every Christian, including you, is a work in progress. And fifth, your approach to evangelism is like that of Martin Luther, who said evangelism is just one poor beggar telling another poor beggar where you found bread. Your attitude isn't the attitude of the proud. Believe me, I'm right. It's come meet a man who told me I was wrong. And he loved me. Sixth, how do you relate to other people's faults? Those who are poor in spirit are self-critical and others charitable. 
We are learning as the disciples of Jesus to evaluate ourselves more clearly and honestly. Even while we evaluate other people with greater charity. Says C.S. Lewis, to avoid a man's society because he is poor or ugly or stupid may be bad. But avoid it because he is wicked. With all the but inevitable implication that you are less wicked, at least in some respects, is dangerous and disgusting. (laughs) Let us be thankful that Jesus did not avoid us. Let us be thankful that he mingled with tax collectors and prostitutes and other sinners. While... In love, he called out the self-righteous arrogance of religious leaders. And so, the poor in spirit forgive others their faults because God in Christ forgave them. Are you poor in spirit? Yours is the kingdom of heaven. You who belong to Jesus, are you more and more growing? Poor in spirit? If not, confess your pride to him who humbled himself to serve you in death on a cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your good, kind, generous, open-handed blessing to all who are needy and look to your son. Give us eyes and hearts to believe that and to trust in him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.